Hallelujah. Oh, Father, we thank you for this opportunity that your grace has provided us this day to gather with the assembly of the beloved and to behold your glory revealed to us in your holy word, to behold the testimony of the saints to our right and to our left who have been ransomed by the power of Christ's blood alone. Lord, to bow ourselves low before the authority and the power and the only way of salvation, Jesus Christ, and to lift up Him in the praises of our lips and to say to Him is deserving all glory, honor, and praise. And also, Lord, this morning at Your table, at this memorial feast, that we with wide-eyed wonder and childlike curiosity and faith, Lord Jesus, stirred afresh, might return to Your table and ask ourselves, what is the meaning? And find the answer in the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, slain for our transgressions, bruised, broken for our iniquities. And as we behold His blood pictured in the cup, as we behold His broken body pictured in the bread, that our hearts would be stirred afresh with understanding and affections worthy of the great work of redemption in which heaven and earth bowed to the decree of Almighty God to accomplish full and final salvation in Jesus Christ, the Lamb that was slain, forever the only way, truth, and life. Now as we turn to your holy scriptures, open our eyes to behold more truths connected to your great work of salvation in order that we might do better job, a better job glorifying you, Lord, and seeking your face and you alone in this day of darkness that your church might shine bright and that you may continue to draw the lost unto salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a gracious opportunity we have to open up the Holy Scriptures today. I pray that you are thankful for it. As many days as the Lord graciously provides for us to gather that with each one we would pause and realize the incredible price that was paid to make today possible, and also to realize the means of grace that God has provided in the proclamation of His Word for the strengthening, the equipping of the saints, and for the drawing of the lost unto salvation. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. In our communion series, we've been studying the book of Galatians. We come now to the end of the second chapter. The book of Galatians is central to Paul's thought as he expounds the essence and ground of salvation. And you could say perhaps in our text today, some of these verses are central even to this book. The title of this morning's message is Crucified with Purpose. Crucified with Purpose. The title comes from This point that Paul makes in Galatians 2.21, at the end of the verse, he says, if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. But since the opposite is in fact true, that justification is not through the law, but by grace through faith alone, then consequently the the converse is true. Christ indeed died with purpose. Christ was crucified with purpose. And this morning... In the words of Paul, we will learn what that purpose was, in fact. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to equip the hearer, to equip you, to equip I, myself, to equip us with the clarity and resolve demanded of true gospel understanding, appreciation, and proclamation. 
The words of Paul contain the power by the Spirit's use of them, by the Spirit's inspiration of them, to give us the clarity and the resolve demanded of the true gospel, the true and precious gospel, in three ways. Our understanding of it, our appreciation of it, and our proclamation of it. With your Bible open to Galatians 2, verses 15 through 21, would you stand out of reverence for the Holy Word of God? And listen as the Word is proclaimed in your hearing this day. Here is the Holy Word of God, Galatians 2.15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Servant, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Our text today is not only central to the theme of Paul's thesis on the gospel, or, under, or Paul's uh, theme and understanding of the book of Galatians. Our text is not only central to the theme and understanding of the book of Galatians, but also to the entirety of Paul's thesis on the gospel and his personal motivation for ministry. Here in these words that we have just read, we get to the bedrock of the Christian faith and gospel. The foundation, the dividing line, the place where the essence of the proclamation of what makes Christianity Christianity is defined and against which no adulteration will be tolerated by the apostle. Any minor adaptations, minor quote-unquote, any new and improved ideas, anything stuck on, bolted on to this framework by the whim and will of man or the new improved ideas of the teachers that were influential in Paul's day will be thoroughly repudiated, thoroughly rejected. And Paul says that anyone who does not follow him and rejecting any, any uh, capitulation on these matters or any compromise according to these truths will be anathematized, will be under the curse, will in fact lose the gospel itself, will in fact prove to not understand it, appreciate it, and therefore be able to proclaim it in the first place. This is how important this bedrock that Paul proclaims of the Christian faith and gospel is. Pause for a moment with me and let's consider the providence of God, how sufficient these words have been to preserve His church and the message of the true faith for 2,000 years. The close of this message, we might mention, I might mention again that around this time, we sometimes celebrate the anniversary of the nailing of the theses to the door of Wittenberg as Martin Luther, the would-be reformer, took a stand 501 years ago, as I recall, or thereabouts. 
Why was this moment so significant? It was significant because just like in Paul's day, there were forces afoot. There was false teaching abounding that sought to modify the truth of the gospel. And there was a time where godly men must rise up and say anathema to anything that is outside the once for all faith delivered to the saints. It's worth contending for. And if we do not fight for it, if we do not stand upon the truth of the Christian faith and gospel as it is defined according to these words, we are in danger, grave danger. And so is the church. And God has preserved His church through the proclamation of Paul's ministry, his uncompromising stand on the truth, and a return to his words 500 years ago was sufficient to preserve his church. And even today, we return to these words so that in an era where deception abounds and once again false teaching is popular, we find in the word of God, in these words, sufficient grace to stand. So let us stand, saints. The Cambridge Bible says of this passage, a brief bit of commentary I found, especially of verse 20, the following. This verse strikes the keynote of the epistle and is a summary of the whole Christian revelation subjectively considered. St. Paul here discloses to our view the secret of his life as a Christian and an apostle. The mainspring of his wonderful activity, the source and the object of the enthusiasm by which he was inspired. We know something of his life and his labors. Here he tells us how that life was lived and why those labors were undergone. A full record of his teaching has been preserved for us. Here is a summary of it all. And the verse to which this commentator refers is verse 20 of our text today. Again, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. Sufficient ground to encourage and strengthen and provide endurance and perseverance for a man who would be stoned, shipwrecked, beaten, ostracized, mocked for his faith. And it is today sufficient for us as well. Now, Paul, in typically thorough and precise, if you will, Pauline fashion, expounds or emphasizes and defends the true gospel by means of four different literary uh, literary devices. So this morning, I'd like us to consider this text according to four sections where Paul employs different ways of speaking to make his point. The heading is as follows. Paul defends the true gospel with four literary devices. The first, perhaps we could say, is juxtaposition. We'll define these in process. The second is reductio ad absurdum. I apologize for the Latin and my pronunciation of it. It means to reduce an idea to its absurd conclusion. So we have juxtaposition, kind of a a, a reductio. Thirdly, a paradox. And fourthly, a conditional statement. So that will be the basic structure of Paul's argument as I see it here in Galatians 2, 15 through 21. And we'll see the points that Paul seeks to emphasize by employing these devices this morning, I trust. First of all, juxtaposition. Paul defends the true gospel by setting two ideas next to each other for explanatory purposes. He's comparing and contrasting one thing to another. Two different juxtapositions we can perhaps see in verses 15 and 16. Jew and Gentile side by side. And then secondly, Works and faith. 
Again, verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So we see that Paul distinguishes between two categories of people, Jews and Gentiles. That is the basic differentiation in the Hebrew worldview between those who are in the covenant, Jews, Gentiles, outside of the covenant. However, these terms have, were more broadly employed to incorporate ethnicity as well. There are those who were born among the Jews and were associated by birth, and there are those who were not privileged by their birth and ethnicity to share in the same cultural experience, and they would be the Gentiles. What is the difference? What is essentially the difference between a Jew and a Gentile? We'll explore that more thoroughly in a moment. Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. In verse 16, Paul goes on and says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So the distinction between Jew and Gentile, the distinction, and then which is perhaps the more superficial note in the text, but then Paul gets to the substance, the juxtaposition that really matters, is, is justification by works or justification by faith? Let's go to uh, Romans chapter 2. We might ask the question, many have, it's a great question, what, is, what difference does this distinction make, Jew versus Gentile, with respect to the ground of the gospel? Paul answers this more directly in Romans 2 towards the end of the chapter. Let's begin in verse 28. He says, For no one is a Jew... Who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. What Paul is doing here is he's reframing what would be the common understanding of the difference between a Jew and a Gentile. The average Jew at the time of Paul's proclamation might have seen themselves as special or uh, as saved or privileged simply because that they were circumcised, that they had been associated with the traditions that accompanied the Hebrew way of life, and by this measure that they had reason to be encouraged and to consider themselves superior in some way. This is the outward idea of what it meant to be a Jew. But Paul said that this distinction is superficial. It does not carry any weight. He says that outward circumcision is meaningless in as far as it is an assurance of your salvation. A true Jew, according to Paul, is one who is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, not by the letter. And consequently, this is something that the credit does not go to man. His praise is not from man, but from God. Well, that might raise the question, what advantage then is there to being a Jew? That's exactly the question. That Paul anticipates, and we continue in verse 3, what, or chapter 3, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, verse 3. What if some run faithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, 
Why am I still being condemned as, as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. So you see, Paul is working through all of these objections that the unbeliever might bring against the truth of the gospel, and he's getting to the core difference and what is the advantage of God's means of revelation as it has come through the Jewish tradition and so forth, primarily through the Scriptures. We have already charged that all, he says, both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. Verse 10 continues, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. He continues with this citation. He brings his argument to a head in verse 20. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. For since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the purpose of the law, the purpose of this tradition, this, uh, these specific ceremonial uh, instructions as well as the moral law of God was to demonstrate that both Jew and Gentile are guilty of sin and there is not a single one righteous. He goes on, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe there is no distinction. So there it is. The Jew versus Gentile distinction substantially is, is erased when we, when we realize that the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, not for those who believe that they will be saved by their law-keeping. This is something that must be emphasized all through the generations. In a Reformed church such as ours, where these traditions are absolutely fundamental to what we seek to proclaim and stand for, it can seem like old news, and we might even tune out with the familiarity of these proclamations. We should not do so. It is so tempting. It is such an insidious, a desirable, attractive notion that the enemy would like to get into our minds that something other than or something to augment the faith should be or can be added to the gospel such that we find reason to boast in ourselves. Paul militates against this idea by pointing always and only to Jesus Christ and His work. It is by faith in what He has done that we are set apart. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, called out, set apart, predestined, elect, to show forth the praises of our God and the words of another apostle as well, and those of Paul and the testimony of Scripture. This is the difference. As we see what difference this distinction between Jew and Gentile make, a Gentile make, makes, we find that it makes all the difference in the world when it's spiritually defined. He who is a true Jew is not one by his outward action or obedience to the law, but by his inward conformity to the work of Christ, inasmuch as he truly believes that Jesus Christ, born under the law, fulfilling the law, keeping every jot and tittle of the law, and then dying in our place is our hope for salvation. So this is what Paul is doing, or this is the truths to which Paul points in defending the true gospel. Now he goes on emphasizing the juxtaposition of works and faith in Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, if you had your highlighter and you were looking for terms that Paul was emphasizing by repeating them, certainly the one that would probably come out the boldest would be justification. What does justification mean? Before I define it, let me just say this. Upon the definition of this word hinges the true understanding of the gospel. And this is one way that the enemy can come in and twist the word of God. If people do not understand what Paul means by the term justification, there is a gap in the wall of their understanding and orthodoxy that false teaching can find its way in. That corruption and heresy can find a crowbar point to leverage in and to twist our understanding of what is the true grounds of our salvation. So what is justification? Justification is to declare, to pronounce, or to make one just and righteous. It is a declaration by a judge with the authority to clear the one who is standing before him, as it were, of all charges of sin. It is especially in, uh, the, the word is especially used or utilized in a legal and authoritative context. It is to be conformed to the proper standard. It is, uh, in short, the proclamation, you are righteous and I have the power to say so. You are righteous and I have the power to say so. Now, when God justifies us, He is the one with the power to say so. He's not just the one with the power to say so, but He is the, the one with the power to effect that thing, to do it, to actually accomplish our justification. And He does so by the work of Christ alone. Upon this concept hinges a true understanding of the gospel. Now, again, as I mentioned, we live in a day where many other variations to this truth exist. I read a, a little article um, by a Mormon this week, and his article was centered around a quotation from 2 Nephi 25-23. through 23. Uh, Young people, where is 2 Nephi in the Bible? It's not even in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Trick question. It's not even in the Bible. Uh, in your study last week, young people, we went over Revelation uh, 22, I believe, verses uh, 18 and 19. Does anyone remember what John tells us we should not do in Revelation 22? You should not add or take away from the Bible. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Now, in direct disobedience to this instruction, uh, the Book of Mormon, their quote-unquote scriptures, like 2 Nephi 25-23, teach the following. This is a quote. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. We know that we are by grace that we are saved after all we can do. True or false? That is false. You see, in this phrase, we are saved by grace after all we can do, justification is not exclusively 
by Jesus Christ. But it is our works and His that make us right before God. Without our works adding to His work, according to this false teaching, man is not saved. There are other false teachings along these lines as well. The deeper you dig into Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, the more you find this exact uh, misunderstanding of the gospel, exact heresy in so many words, uh, uh, proffered, uh, put forth, at, that God's grace is necessary, yes, but it is not sufficient. There are works required on our part as ground for our justification. In part this morning, I pray that Paul's words would prepare you not only to resist these false teachings, but to proclaim to those who are lost and are deceived by them the truth of God's holy word. Salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ, not by works of the law. Paul says as much, by the works of the law, no one will be justified, period. Upon this truth hinges the entirety of Paul's thesis of salvation and the message of Holy Scripture. So we see Paul defending the truth of the gospel by juxtaposing Jew and Gentile, what that means, and also works and faith. He says that we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. There are those teaching at his time that one must convert to Judaism first, and then they can be a Christian. Without that work of law, namely circumcision was at issue there, a person could not be saved in the mind and the preaching of the Judaizers. Paul says that no one is justified by any work of law added to faith in Jesus Christ, but only through faith in Jesus Christ do we, uh, believe, or, uh, do we have our salvation assured. Secondly, Paul defends the true gospel with another literary device, and this is the fancy one, reductio ad absurdum or reducing to absurdity. In this device, Paul pushes the logical progression of his opponent's argument to its end and thus showing its absurdity. Listen to the way he speaks in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. He goes on. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, it took me some thinking and some reading to figure out exactly what Paul is getting at here. And this is my stab at it. First of all, Paul is linking sufficiency and authority. In other words, if Jesus is authoritative over sin, then it follows that his work is absolutely sufficient. Notice verse 17, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? So if we endeavor to be justified by Christ, but there's an area of life that is not sufficiently covered by His work alone, then there is something, there is area of sin to which Christ is not sovereign over, that His death is not powerful enough to atone. Perhaps we could state it this way. If Christian justification does not fully and finally deal with sin, then there remains an aspect of the fall more powerful than Christ. Uh, Said again, if Christian justification does not fully and finally deal with sin, then there remains a corruption in Adam, an aspect of the fall more powerful than Christ. We must therefore conclude with respect to this remaining unatoned corruption 
Christ is the inferior power, not the greater force. When the heel, when the heel of the seed of the woman meets the serpent's head, is there any portion of the serpent, any portion of his work that will remain alive? Or is there any uh, part of the devil that must be stomped out by another means? Or is the heel of Christ sufficient to utterly reverse the curse, crush the serpent's head? Of course, the answer is absolutely sufficient. The work of Christ, His authority, and His sufficiency are connected. That is to say, if Jesus Christ, would, was, if His work on Calvary was not sufficient to atone fully and finally for every sin, then His glory must be shared with another. It is Christ and me, the heretic says, that deserve glory and credit because my works, although just a little bit, and His, yes, albeit greater works, have combined to take care of this thing, to atone for my sin. No. Such is a cursed doctrine, Paul would say. Anathema. Paul is... Uh, Paul is emphatic, and he will uh, he will uh, he will take, uh, suffer no compromise on this point. His language in this book is as strong as it's ever been in the words that he says, and I believe that the reason, ultimately speaking, why he is so ardent in his uh, defense of the gospel is because he cares more about the glory of God and will suffer no idolatry, namely glory of man alongside his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is why he says in Galatians 1.6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Astonished? Turning? Different gospel? Isn't that a little harsh, Paul? All they want to do is add a little something to what you were saying. They just want to, you know, make it a little better, tweak it a bit. But even if we are an angel from heaven, Paul goes on in verse 8, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, rejected, anathema, hell-bent, deserving of the worst kind of destruction that man could ever conceive, the wrath of God for his sin of adding to the gospel something that would give man glory to participate alongside Jesus in taking care of his atonement. This is why Paul is so forceful in his declarations to the contrary against these false teachers because they had inadvertently uh, raised up an idol alongside Christ and Paul was fighting to destroy that thing. Sufficiency and authority are connected. So back in our text, Galatians 2.17, if at the end of the day we find that Christ's atonement is not sufficient, then he, in some sense, could be said to be the servant of sin. That is, there's an aspect of corruption that is Lord over him. He is inferior to, he's not sovereign over. And to this, Paul yells, if, if you will, certainly not. Second, reductio ad absurdum, or pushing the argument to absurdity. Paul says in verse 18, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, he goes on. In this section, Paul is talking about rebuilding that which was torn down inasmuch as this false notion of the Judaizing heresy, the idea that works save. And here we see a link between sin and doctrine. The Judaizing project, the notion that our works are necessary for our salvation, they um, uh, there are, that Christ's work is not sufficient, this Judaizing project assumes 
Either Christ is a servant of sin, as we've seen before, or there are transgressions, uh, inasmuch as there are transgressions beyond the power of his death to atone, or for the purveyors of this teaching affecting the church, uh, they are the servants of sin. They are betraying their unbelief by promoting false teaching. In other words, Paul says, he has torn down this notion of justification by works. And if he were to build that up again or allow false teachers to build that up again, he would prove himself to be the transgressor. In other words, two things cannot stand in the same place. Justification by works and Christ's atoning death on the cross. This is his final point that he makes at the close. If justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So, if anyone is teaching justification through the law even a little bit, what are they proclaiming? Christ's death is for no purpose. And if you're out there saying that Christ's death is meaningless, it bears real, no real weight, uh, Christ has no significance in his redemptive work in history, what are you? You are a transgressor. You are a heretic. You are an unbeliever. You are of the spirit of the Antichrist. And so Paul is laying down the line. He is drawing a line in the sand. He's illustrating that Christ's authority and sufficiency are absolutely connected, and sin and doctrine, in order, if you uh, capitulate on doctrine, basically sin is at stake. Either you're showing Christ to be faulty, or you're demonstrating your own sinfulness. And of course, the second is true. Paul continues to defend the true gospel. We've gone through two devices so far, juxtaposition, reductio ad absurdum. The third is a paradox. A paradox is things that appear to be contradictory, but in closer analysis actually do uh, correspond to one another or reinforce one another or exist alongside one another. Verse 20, Paul says, we'll rewind to 19, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Paul says he died to something so that he might live to something else. Death in order to live? That sounds like a paradox. Sounds at first like a contradiction. But it is not upon closer review. Paul is saying, in one sense I died, or I died to something, so that in another sense I might live to something else. He died to the law to live to God. Paul goes on. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So crucifixion and life again. Paul so identif identifies so closely with the death of Christ that he describes himself as having been crucified with him. But this was for a purpose, that he might live. Well, more, more specifically, that Christ might live in him. And he says, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Though he lives on in a physical way, it's not a life that is defined by the physical, but it's a life that is animated by faith in the Son of God. These are the glorious paradoxes of the faith. Dead to the law and alive to God. What does Paul mean here? Paul died to the law. Before Paul, when Paul was on his way to Damascus, when he was persecuting the church, when he was stirring up great uh, affliction against the people of God, when he was beseeching false authorities for arrest warrants for the people of God, he was an enemy of Jesus Christ. And as such, he was alive to the law. In other words, the law stood over him and condemned him. And when the message, uh, the divine proclamation, the words of Jesus Christ himself echoed forth, what did they say? Saul, Saul, 
why are you persecuting me? Now, if Saul did not repent, what do you suppose the law would do to him on account of his killing, or at least being complicit with the murder of Christians? Yes, it would judge him, condemn him. Under the law, Paul was condemned. He was a sinner. He described himself as the chief of sinners. He goes on to say that this is the purpose of the law. In fact, it is to show us that if we are alive to the law, so long as we are under the law, as the, the judgment and pronouncement of condemnation over us, we are doomed. But Paul says he is now dead to the law. What does that mean? Now, with respect to the law, it no longer has standing over him inasmuch as to condemn him and send him to hell. He is alive to God. His sin has been paid for by another. Jesus Christ was killed, thus taking the penalty of the law for Paul in order that Paul might live. And this is the poetic and beautiful way that Paul describes this fundamental change. He is no longer alive to the law as a sentence of condemnation, but the law no longer carries that weight over him. Because Christ took the punishment for him, therefore he is alive to God. Paul is also dead to the law as a means of righteousness or justification, that Paul no longer suffers under this misguided notion that through the obedience to the law, he has hope of being justified. But he now knows that Christ has obeyed for him, and that that righteousness has been imputed, granted, given to him, and inasmuch he has been justified. He has been pronounced righteous and cleared of all charges of sin by the one who has the authority and the power and the legal standing to do so. Paul describes an, a, a union with Christ, an identity with this crucifixion. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Why does Paul use this language of crucifixion unto life? There are certain things that Paul is dead to now. He is so fundamentally changed that the language best suited to describe his new condition is one of death to the old, alive to the new. A death and resurrection reality has taken place in Paul's soul. A Christ is his covenant representative. Therefore, when Christ died for his sins, uh, his sins were atoned for when Christ rose from the dead. Paul's experience is so closely connected to Christ that he uh, participates in this as well, so to speak, and therefore he is a new creation, reborn, spiritually resurrected. His old affections and desires are dead. He no longer wants to seek out and stamp out the, the Christians and the true believers. He no longer seeks vainglory for himself by proving himself superior and his intellectual pursuit of Pharisaism. But he counts all that lost, all that dead, in order that he might gain Christ, as he says in the book of Philippians. Paul describes his new life as one akin to regeneration, being born again. This union with Christ's language is powerful. The old man has died. The old Paul is gone. He so closely identifies with the work of Christ that all this is true of him. And Paul's change was dramatic indeed. It was sort of like a prototype believer, a demonstration of God's miraculous power to save. He can turn one who has a lust to kill the people of God into one who will lay down his life for the proclamation of that gospel he once so hated in an instant by the power 
of His sovereign grace. This is what happened to Paul. He was now dead to the law and alive to God, having been crucified with Christ. He is alive, and now he says, this life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son. Though I still have this physical body, he says it's growing old, wearing out like a tent in Corinthians. He says, nevertheless, the flesh does not animate him anymore. He is no longer primarily motivated by seeking his next meal or his next thrill. Instead, he is animated, animated and motivated by faith in the Son of God. And he's willing, consequently, to suffer pain and hardship, trial, suffering, and whatever he has to go through. Why? Because of a superior love and appreciation, goal, desire, relationship that is connected to his Lord. Faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. These are the glorious paradoxes that Paul outlines. And he, he says this in a very personal way. Though he is condemning the ideology of heresy, he is using himself as a first-person exemplar of this work that has happened. And they're familiar with his testimony. And so he capitalizes on that and says, look at me and understand what has happened. This is the effect and evidence of a true change of heart and faith. Look at this example of the outworking of justification and do not leave this true evidence of faith in Christ for something heretical that will lead you astray. Finally this morning, Paul defends the true gospel with a fourth literary device. He talked about juxtaposition, the reductio ad absurdum, paradox. And the last is a conditional statement, an if-then statement. Verse 21 I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Again, the grace of God is at stake in the understanding and proclamation of the true gospel. If there are works of law that are necessary to add to the work of Christ, such that atonement is Christ is up to Christ and us, then there is no such thing as grace. What is grace? Grace is un... Someone want to finish it? What is grace, young people? Unmerited favor, I heard someone say. That's correct. Grace is unmerited favor. Um, Grace is not a little bit merited favor. Grace is not something that we deserve by following uh, according to any little bit of the law whatsoever. Whatsoever. Grace of God is described in terms that, act, that absolutely eliminate the possibility for us to share in the glory of our own salvation. Think of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, famous verses that underscore this point. The same author again. So that in the coming ages, verse 7, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. At the end of a message like this, you might ask, well, where do good works actually fit then? If they have nothing to do with our justification... Do they have anything to do with the Christian life? The answer is absolutely, they do. 
And the Reformation, as I mentioned before, hinged upon the, note, the, the distinction, yet not separation, of justification and sanctification, two terms of Christianity that must be rightly understood to rightly understand the gospel. Justification is the declaration that you are righteous and holy and in good standing in God's presence. And this is accomplished by the work of God alone. But the fruit of this work in your heart takes place when your desires and affections and goals and motivations, life choices, direction begins to change. Your aspirations become redefined. This is an ongoing process, and we describe this as sanctification. When these two are misunderstood, that is where heresy opens the door in the understanding of the ostensible Christian. When these two are rightly understood according to Scripture, we maintain the foundation of our faith. We are His workmanship, only Christ's workmanship. We're not the workmanship of anyone else uh, besides Christ. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And when this evidence takes place in our life, it speaks to His work continually working out through us in our changing life. This God prepared beforehand. It is a sovereign work of His predestined decree that we should walk in them. Thus, we are changed. Thus, we do follow the law of God as a believer, but Christ alone gets the glory. And grace is at stake in our understanding of these things. We have nothing to do with our justification. However, our obedience following our justification is proof of the Spirit's work in the heart and the life of the believer. And here we have Paul's proclamation of the truth. And finally this morning, Christ's death is at stake in the understanding As we have said before, if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul distinguishes false gospels from the true by this litmus test. Is this teaching proclaiming a religion where the death of Christ is absolutely necessary and absolutely sufficient? Remember that question. Is this teaching, is this instruction that I'm hearing today, is it a religion where the death of Christ is absolutely necessary and absolutely sufficient for the justification of the believer? As I mentioned before, the Reformation hinged upon this question. If we can have righteousness any other way, if we can be justified by any other means, Christ is no longer the way, the truth, and the life. And if we believe such a thing, We rob Christ of His purpose in redemption, and we rob His death of its very meaning. In fact, you know, no one can ultimately rob His death of its meaning, but by taking the stand, we prove ourselves an unbeliever. We prove ourselves outside the faith. We prove ourselves a cursed anathema. If justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. How then are we saved? Well, we know how we are saved from the testimony of Scripture that we have heard today in word form. But let me submit this morning, we also know how we are saved by the testimony of the work of Christ in this visual presentation. The gospel is dramatized before you today. It's portrayed before you in these elements. It is the broken body of Jesus Christ that was broken, bruised for your transgressions and sins. It is the blood of Jesus that was spilled so that there might be remission of your transgressions, your iniquity, so that you might be in right standing before the Lord. And as often said, as sure 
as you will, if you're a believer and therefore welcome at the Lord's table this morning, take this bread and this juice upon your lips so you have really and truly realized justification in the work of Christ alone on Calvary. This is the truth proclaimed in word and in sacrament as it were today before us at this table. Remember that this morning as we remember and proclaim what God has done. Let us transition in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for the message of grace alone. We thank you that Jesus Christ is our salvation. We repent of entertaining any idea in our own minds that would grab for ourselves and rob from you glory, thinking that we are responsible for this work. We know that it is Jesus and Jesus' blood and broken body alone that is the ground of our salvation. I pray that we would remember these truths this morning as we partake at your table. If there are any here in the hearing of this message, Father, who have not realized the only way of salvation, I pray that you would use your, by your, the power of your Spirit, the proclamation of the gospel to draw them to repentance of their sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, in all that you might be glorified, high and lifted up, that your name and your work might be proclaimed, that you would find a fitting throne in the assembly of your people from which your truth is boldly proclaimed so that a world that lies in darkness might see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected, ascended, ruling and reigning until every last enemy is under his feet. Thank you for the triumphal power and the glorious realization of the same in our own hearts and lives and for what you promise through the whole work of redemption that we will yet experience in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In His name we pray, amen.